Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Oh my goodness. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen, and Tim Leonard. Tim, you've taken the place of a Hall of Famer. Jim Palmer was sitting right where you sat not very well, Jim, long Jim ago. Was here. Yeah, yeah was, Jim was, was right there. I mean, seat. I was, you didn't have to. It was more of a metaphor. Uh, two days ago, mm-hmm. how do you feel taking over for a Hall of Famer here? Very big shoes. Uh, Literally. Uh, he's yeah, a good, yeah. He's a big man. Tall, tall guy. Yeah. I mean, that helped him with his pitching for sure. I think I might talk a little bit less than him, but that's all right because we had Jim Palmer on to discuss him, and, and I thought it was a lovely podcast. Yeah, I think, you, I think you have less to talk about. Yes, no, that's no offense true. To you, yeah. everybody has. I don't remember what happened in 1968 <laughs> in the ALDS, but he does, and he's yeah. very impressive. Within, <laughs> if you haven't gone back and listened to that episode, I suggest you do. Within maybe two and a half minutes of the podcast starting, he's mentioning the 1968 World Series or something, mm-hmm. and it's just... I mean, we were both just sitting head. on the edge going, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, yeah. right. No, I, I, sure, I remember that. I mean, yeah. I think that we know baseball history a fair amount. Yeah, but I'd say so. Nobody knows it like Jim Palmer. I mean, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he's the king of that. Uh, well, guys, we're in the off season. Yeah. yeah. It's official. Uh, what are you guys going to do for your next couple weeks because i'm just gonna sit in a dark room and probably play hello darkness my old friend and, well uh, i mean that sounds lovely i think i'm gonna try to figure out how to swivel i think i'm gonna come in in the off season <laughs> and just really grind and figure out how to sit in this place on the couch because you know i'm talking here i'm talking here i don't it, this is difficult get a swivel chair this isn't yeah. gonna make sense to the people listening on soundcloud but this no. is <laughs> this, this is hard to watch the podcast right see our beautiful faces tim what are you gonna do with your offseason? Oh, man i think i'm gonna hone in on the golf skills we got a big golf round tomorrow yeah. that's i, I think sure. while the weather is still nice that's our big off-season goal really should, for you guys too. Yeah. improve your golf games should we go live from the golf course if Let's, the service is there maybe i think yeah. we should but th- I, that is, would be tim no <laughs> tim is the one person that would be for that idea, I would think, because Tim yeah. is going to absolutely destroy both of us, we and we're to, the ones that are going to get embarrassed. We'd have to keep it PG, you know, sure. no cursing. But I'm out. Tim would be, yeah, you're you're done. I'm, yeah. Tim would be <laughs> fine because Tim's the best golfer. You, you don't want to go live? Well, I think you know we can't show our broken clubs and yeah. stuff like that. You know, it's a when you're out on the golf course, we're not our podcast selves. No, so we're I'll put it that animals. way. We're, we're different people out yeah. there. We're, we're different people without the microphone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you catch us anywhere in public, we will, you know, brush you aside. I mean, we are full full on Leonardo DiCaprio's out there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did have a lovely conversation at the game we yesterday with, with a, Marty. Yeah, shout out to Marty. Listen, yeah. along. If you're listening, Marty. Hi, Marty. Uh, all right, guys. We got a lot of awards to hand out on this podcast because the season has officially concluded. We have the stats on this 83 and 79 season, a winning season for the first time since 2016, a very successful season by all accounts, despite the fact that this team did not end up in the postseason. And frankly, in previous years, I'll be honest, when we've done this podcast, we've had a hard time filling out the categories. We do four for each category because there haven't been quite enough qualified you know, contestants for these. However, this podcast is going to be totally different. It was hard to narrow down all of the qualified entrants for these categories because there were so many good games, so many good performances, and so many good moments 
over the 2022 season. Yeah, and I think at some point, you know, we'll do more of a, an overarching look back at the season as a whole. But like you said, Paul, when you have a year where you improve by 30-plus games in the win-loss column, it's hard to go back through the season and really hone in on which specific moments or which specific players meant the most to the team because it was such a large collective effort to get to this point that it was difficult to narrow down these choices, which, you know, makes for a fun podcast. Yeah, I mean, to peel back the curtain a little bit, we probably had, what, 10 to 12 best game contenders? At least, And we had yeah. to pick four, ultimately, and that was very challenging. In a previous year, I think it would have been a lot easier, but it is a fun year to do it. And one of the fun things about doing this, and I'm sure some of the listeners and viewers will enjoy doing the same thing, is just kind of remembering different moments throughout the long season. Yeah. And you go back and you think, oh, yeah, that's right, that weekend that Adley came up, that was awesome. Oh, yeah, that winning streak in July. There's so many moments this year that you forget about, so that's going to be one of the fun parts. Before we get into it, we are men of integrity, and uh, <laughs> we have to bring up our good predictions, and we can take credit for that. We can also take blame for our poor predictions. I'm going to look back. We made predictions, Brendan, you and I. The yeah, they weren't the good. Season. We're usually way off on all of these, and uh, especially the win-loss record. But I'll be, I'll be honest. Everybody was off on the win-loss record. That's still not an excuse. We were wrong. But you and I both had this team losing around 100 games. I had them losing exactly 100 games, 62 and 100. You had them... <laughs> Going 64 and 96, which doesn't add up to 162. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so, uh, to be fair, that was right after the lockout. I, I was trying to figure out how, how many games there would even be. I mean, I was yeah, all sure. confused. And right. honestly, if they had decided to not play that doubleheader yesterday, you could have been <laughs> correct in terms of the total number of games. Not and the you were all laughing when I didn't <laughs> add up to 162, and you I were, would have been right. Uh, you, one of your great picks, actually, uh, you predicted that Adley would win Rookie of the Year on a future podcast. I think we'll discuss the Rookie of the Year debate. But he is, at the very least, going to come in second in this uh, yeah. Rookie of the Year voting. So that was a great prediction. Uh, for best starter of the season, we both said means. That was unfortunately derailed due to injury. We did most valuable Oriole predictions. Uh, you had Ryan Mountcastle. I had John Means. Means had the injury. Mountcastle, when all was said and done, his counting stats actually looked pretty good compared to the rest of the, the group. But, of course, Adley Rutschman ran away with this thing. And I did say on that podcast, there's a decent chance Adley Rutschman comes up and puts on a show, and he did. Best reliever, we were pretty accurate. We said Jorge Lopez. Um, but the one area I was not accurate in is I said he was the most likely guy in that bullpen to stick around from opening day to game 162. No. <laughs> but I didn't think he was going to be good enough to get traded. Well, in fairness, I think that argument was made because we were looking at Jorge Lopez and saying, okay, who has the potential to pitch well enough to stay on this team? And he just pitched so well that yes. he was a deadline piece. So it was the right line of thinking, but he was just so good that he got traded. And I will say in our defense of the records, we both had them losing around 100 games. We were higher on them record-wise than most. And if they had lost 100 games, that's still a 10-game improvement from the previous season. <laughs> so Instead, it was 30. <laughs> instead, it was 30. So we both still said that they would improve. We just didn't see this level of improvement. I don't think anybody did, no. truly. Uh, even Brandon Hyde, I think if you asked him honestly before the season, he probably would have given you a similar record. Maybe not 100 losses, but 
I don't think in his wildest dreams he saw this team winning 83 games. And honestly, same with Mike Elias. I think that yeah. this, this year came out of nowhere. By the way, we are getting comments about who to keep an eye on in free agency. In the coming weeks, we will also have – we have so many podcasts planned. Yeah. We will have a free agency podcast where we preview the biggest names out there and the Orioles' needs. And then we will do our free agency bracket where we determine who the most likely guy is that the Orioles sign. Free agency bracket that we nailed last year, mind you. Absolutely crushed. Yeah, It's going to be tough this year because I don't want to get into it, but there are going to be guys <laughs> all over the map, guys in the lower end, guys in the higher end that we think maybe the Orioles have a shot at signing. Uh, all right, let's go into our awards, guys. And let's start. We'll ramp up consistently with more intriguing awards like the Oscars. Right. right. Let's start with best short-lived storyline. Now, this is an award that is given from the media perspective. Stuff that we talked about that we probably made too much of a deal about. We probably talked a little bit too much about and ended up turning out to not be a big deal. First member of this category is how will the Orioles' bullpen survive without Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer? How will they do it? (laughs) Incredibly well. Uh, The second member of this category, the whole Matt Harvey thing. Of course, the Orioles signed him on April 8th, suspended... 60 games, never ended up coming up to Baltimore. Kind of forgot about that one. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Anthony Santander and Taron Vavra, will one of those get action at first base? That was a big storyline for a while, if you recall. Uh, and then Grayson Rodriguez, a recent one, will he start in Baltimore by season's end? Will he make his debut? Guys, what do you think of these four? Sam, you want to start? I would say the bullpen one is the biggest short-lived storyline for me. The how will the bullpen survive without Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer? And I say that from a standpoint of maybe because it was so long ago, it feels like it was a short-lived one and forever ago. But also, it's the most laughable one to think back on, I think, because of how successful the bullpen was despite losing those two guys who... By the way, I think Cole Sulcer had about a 5 ERA for the Marlins this year. Tanner Scott was right around what he was for the Orioles, maybe even a little bit better. His ERA was in the fours this year. But it's another example of the Orioles making a trade and just identifying a pitcher that maybe they're selling high on and also understanding that they have arms within their system already that they can turn someone's trash into treasure, right? And we saw that with some of the guys we're going to talk about when we get into best reliever and some of the categories there. But I think that one, because of how much that storyline just became a non-factor very quickly, because the bullpen was really good right out of the gates. Yeah, I'm with you. That's my winner as well. I will say I think the funniest one out of this category was who is going to play first base. We had an entire podcast where we got through about 45 minutes of talking about what the Orioles do as a backup first baseman. Yeah. And then as we are live on the podcast, we didn't even see the news because we were signing off. The Orioles signed Jesus Aguilar. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had just spent 45 minutes talking about a scenario which no longer existed because they had filled that role with Jesus Aguilar. But yeah, I'm with you, Tim. Tanner Scott and Cole Solcer just have not been good this year. They both have negative wars. Tanner Scott is still walking guys at a ridiculous rate in Miami. Cole Solcer, I think, has an ERA in the mid-fives. 5-2-9. Five, yeah, yeah. 5 two, nine. He had two saves on the year, whip over 1.6. They just haven't been very good. And for how much of a big deal that was in the offseason, that Brandon Hyde had no relievers to work with, pretty much every reliever in the Orioles' bullpen was better than those two guys. Well, we were looking at the bullpen before opening day and saying it's a thin group and then on april 3rd they trade those two guys right so 
it was looking like, oh boy, this is going to be disaster coming for this bullpen. And it ended up being the right move for the Orioles because it cleared out some space. Paul Fry, another member of this bullpen that was designated for assignment that we were expecting, if this bullpen is going to be good, they're going to need major contributions from Paul Fry. So the winner of that category is how will the bullpen survive without Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer? <laughs> Best short-lived storyline. Congratulations. Best off-season edition. Our nominees. Brian Baker, who was claimed off waivers. Jordan Lyles, who was signed to a one-year, potentially two-year contract. CNL Perez, another waiver claim. And Rugned Odor, a one-year, $1 million contract. Guys? This one's hard. Uh, I think there are two... Clear favorites in this category being Jordan Lyles and CNL Perez. Jordan Lyles has, I mean, he ate his heart out in Baltimore. <laughs> that, that guy nom nommed until he is stuffed. He is completely full. He ate. He wanted more innings at the end of the year. He did. <laughs> he was hungry for more. And he did exactly what the Orioles expected him to do, which was to eat innings, to save the bullpen. And I don't think you could have asked for much more out of Jordan Lyles. However, I think my vote here goes to CNL Paris. A kind of a sneaky 140 ERA on the season. Second lowest in Orioles history among pitchers with 50 plus innings. And the thing with Perez where I know we're looking at this season and talking about the results of 2022 when we're looking at these categories, but Perez is 26. Yeah. And if you're talking about an off-season addition, I know bullpen arms can be up and down and they can waver in their success throughout the years, but Perez at just 26 years old not only has a chance to you know have been a fixture this year, but to be a fixture moving forward. And Felix Batista gets a ton of credit, as he should, for the ninth inning and, and closing down games, but oftentimes he is in those good spots because CNL Perez is locking down the 7-3. CNL Perez... I think was the most underrated Oriole this year. Because when you look at his numbers, 143 ERA, it doesn't feel like it was that good, but it, it was. <laughs> the numbers don't lie. Yeah. Now, you can make a case that the expected ERA is a lot higher, and maybe there was some luck involved with that. But the number of 1.43 ERA after having a six ERA season, I'll give him the slight edge in best offseason addition over Lyles. I think you have to factor in that Lyles is a veteran who really helped out the staff pitching-wise when they really needed it. They needed a veteran presence. But when you consider what we expected Jordan Lyles to be, I think he was probably definitely better than those expectations, but we kind of knew what we were getting with Jordan Lyles. We did not expect CNL Perez to be anything close to this when he was coming off a six ERA season. So relative to expectations, I give Perez the edge. The other factor to consider here is the investment that you put in these guys because right. Baker and Perez were both waiver claims. You're really not investing yeah. much at all into that other than a roster spot. We, meanwhile, Jordan Lyles got $5.5 million dollars with a $500,000 signing bonus, a $1 million buyout, $11 million team option for next year, and $500,000 if traded. Remember, that that deal was agreed upon right before the lockout began in December, and then it wasn't finalized until the lockout ended. And now the Orioles have a decision to make for 2023 and beyond. But I agree with you guys. I think Perez probably deserves this award at this point. I think you could make a solid case for Lyles, but... Perez, when you look forward to 2023 and beyond, the future is certainly bright for a guy who's only 26. Right. So he wins the award for best offseason edition. Our nominees for the next category, best surprise. Whew. This category could have been loaded with 10, but instead mm -hmm. we narrowed it down to four. 
Perez is our honorable mention in this category because he certainly was surprising. But when you consider the other nominees, he had Dean Kramer, who, remember, had an oblique injury to start the year. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, short-lived storyline. Dean yeah. Kramer. <laughs> yeah, didn't pitch until mid-May and started with Bowie, then Norfolk, before he made his way back up to Baltimore. Austin Voth, who was claimed off waivers from the Washington National after putting up a 10 ERA for them. <laughs> He was claimed on June 7th and ended up becoming a big part of that rotation. Jorge Mateo was acquired via waiver claim last season. We thought maybe this guy has a chance to be a super utility player, and he locked down shortstop. And then Felix Bautista, what can you say about the guy that has been the most consistent reliever from start to finish in the Orioles' bullpen? Yeah, this for me was one of the most difficult categories to choose from. I'm kind of going to go name by name and break down my thinking here a little bit. Dean Kramer, I think, has a solid case. However, he flashed. Two seasons ago, he looked bad last year. And seeing Nightmare him season even struggling in AAA Norfolk. Yeah. So to see the improvements that Dean Kramer has made this season, trusting his stuff with a much better command of the strike zone, incredibly surprising. However, I think the talent was always there with Dean Kramer. I think we saw it in flashes two seasons ago. And I think now we're finally seeing it come together in yeah. a way that's really effective for Dean Kramer. So it's still surprising, but we saw a glimpse. I think the same argument can be made for Jorge Mateo, where you knew the athletic ability was there. He always had the pedigree as a top prospect dating back to when he was the top prospect in the Yankees system. Yeah. The talent was always there with Mateo, and he just never really put it together. And I think once he got more consistent reps at shortstop, not that it was, you know, a given that he was going to be this good defensively, but you could look at the reasons why and go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. He's getting everyday reps. He's getting the practice. This makes sense because the ability is there. Felix Batista, same kind of argument. He was able to crack into the Orioles' top 30 prospects a season ago, which is very hard to do for a reliever. And yes, he struggled with walks. And that's the biggest surprise for me this season with Bautista is that the command has been fantastic and the walk numbers have gone way down. But he, again, flashed in the minors last year. Austin Voth did not flash. Austin Voth had a five-year career in Washington in which he had a 634 ERA in 2020, a 534 in 2021, and an ERA over 10 this season. That is a consistent track record of not being very good in the major leagues. And then he comes to Baltimore and lights the world on fire. So Austin Voth gets my vote. Austin Voth gets my vote too. And I say that from a standpoint of not necessarily he was the most important surprise of the season. I think you can make strong cases that Jorge Mateo, Felix Bautista were the most important surprising players, but he was the most shocking, most surprising to see him go from the Nationals. Keep in mind, the Nationals are in no position to give up on anyone who has any, you know, sort of potential to recover, right? Yeah. They're in a rebuilding stage right now. So usually it should be the other way around. It should be like maybe a Yankees gives up on a player and then the Orioles scoop up the player. And to see what they did with him when he came to Baltimore, they recognized that his spin rate percentile for curveball was in the 96th percentile and he was not throwing his curveball as much as he needed to for the Nationals. So they said, 
All right, throw your curveball more, throw your fastball a little bit less. He added a slider, he added a changeup, and all of a sudden, just by tweaking that and giving him sort of some more data on his pitches, he really made a leap. So it's a testament to the Orioles pitching staff, their entire organization, to identify a player that a lot of other organizations probably would have given up on. I think if you asked Nationals fans, I'm curious if they would have thought that this was possible from Austin Voth, because I do think that he did flash at times in D.C., and we look at the stats overall and not having him pitched every single time. We didn't get to watch him, you know, every five days when he was in in D.C., but he was considered in the category of a Joe Ross with them, of an Eric Fetty, who was one of their potential fifth starters in a very good rotation for a long time. So I think Nationals fans had higher hopes for him, but he never put up the stats. So I'm wondering if we had more of a Nationals perspective here. We should ask Amy Jennings, our producer here today, <laughs> whether it would have been that big of a surprise. But I think when you look from an Orioles perspective and you just look at the numbers before he was acquired and you factor in what he did after the Orioles made those changes and those tweaks, I think you could give him best surprise because you didn't really know what you had. You weren't expecting... The Orioles make so many waiver claims and they will probably make fewer and fewer as they get better and better. But over the last few years, look at the number of pitchers that they've made waiver claims on that haven't turned into anything. And for him to become a very reliable starter, I think, is a major surprise. So I would give it to Austin Voth as well. Yeah, statistically, he and we'll get into it a little bit later when we do best starter, but his stats, just to put it into context, when he goes from the Nationals having ERA plus averages 100, right? His ERA plus with the Nationals was a 39. It was a 132 in his time with the Orioles. His whip with the Nationals, a 2-1-4-3, drops to a 1-2-2-9 with the Orioles. You can keep going down the list. I think you brought up a good point, Brennan. It's not like he flashed really for a consistent stretch of time at any point in time. Really. Yeah, he's he had a, some solid yeah. starts here and there, but right. it was never a consistent yeah. stretch of quality pitching. He's never been a consistently good pitcher at any one point. And you could right. argue that maybe Dean Kramer has been. I mean, his ERA in 2019 and 2020 and 2021 was all much higher than it is right now. Right. Yeah. All right, best prospect. Another loaded category, and for this one, we had to give honorable mention to Joey Ortiz, who we just couldn't fit in this four-man category. Which well, is amazing. What, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. he hit, what, 19 homers? Right. All the yeah. way up to AAA. Our members of this category, Gunnar Henderson, who I know he finished the season with Baltimore, but look, he already won Baseball America's best prospect, so if it's good enough for Baseball America, good enough for us. He's still considered a prospect. Colton Kowser is in this category as well, who made it all the way up to AAA Norfolk. Orioles number four prospect. He's now number 40 in all of baseball. Started the season with high single A Aberdeen. Hit 299 with four homers in his final 17 games for the Tide. So he was really starting to figure things out by the end of the year. Connor Norby, also in that category. Remember, was the second round pick in the draft that Colton Kowser was the first round pick in, hit 279 with 29 homers on the season. This is a Kyle Stowers-esque jump in terms of power that we saw from Connor Norby. Again, finished the year with AAA Norfolk after starting with high single A Aberdeen, Orioles number 11 prospect. And then the Orioles minor league player of the year, Jordan Westbrook, finishes out this category. 265, 27 homers, too shy of Norby. 852 OPS, also at 12 stolen bags, the number 76 prospect in baseball. Henderson, Kowser, Norby, and Westberg are four nominees. 
Yeah, I'm not going to ramble about this category as much as I rambled about the last one. I think this one's a little easier to choose from, and I think it's Gunnar Henderson. You look at Colton Kowser, Connor Norby, Jordan Westberg. They all had great seasons. I think they all overperformed expectations, but generally progressed as you hoped that they would. They were all excellent, and I think, like I said, they overperformed, but they did not overperform to the extent that Gunnar Henderson did. Beginning the year, Gunnar Henderson and Colton Kowser, similar tiers of prospect, about the 40s or 50s on most rankings. Gunnar Henderson works his way all the way up to the number one prospect in baseball, according to Baseball America, number two prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. He went from the Colton Kowser tier of prospect, which is still very, very good, to the Adley Rutschman tier of prospect, which is the best in baseball. Yeah. Yeah, and actually putting the numbers behind that, Brennan, he was number 57 on Baseball America's prospect rankings to start the year. He jumps to number one. Number 64 on MLB Pipeline, he jumps to number two. Yeah. So no one made a bigger leap this season. I would also say it's pretty amazing that Colton Kowser, you talk about short-lived storylines. Obviously, this is a minor league storyline, so it wouldn't qualify in our original award, but Colton Kowser started out in a storyline early on in the season was he's kind of struggling a little bit in Aberdeen, and here he is having a tremendous season. So I give him a lot of credit. I mean, all these guys, Joey Ortiz has been hitting the cover off the ball since he got to Norfolk. Now that season's over, but he had a really nice stretch there at the end of the year. He had a healthy season and finally turned the corner. I think we're thinking more highly of him as well, but Gunner made a leap that very few prospects in all of baseball have made in recent memory this season. It's funny because you mentioned that struggle struggle stretch mm-hmm. for Colton Kowser that he had in Aberdeen, reminiscent of Gunnar Henderson yes. in 2021, getting to Aberdeen, having 65 games, not putting up great stats, but figuring it out by the end of the season, and then getting up to double-A Bowie, similar with Kowser, and he ends up jumping up two more levels, going from, to Bowie, then going to Norfolk. I agree with you guys. It's really astonishing to think about the meteoric rise that he had. He had 297 with 19 homers and a 946 OPS in 112 minor league games this year and ends up in Baltimore. An outcome I never would have thought possible for him to be a August 31st call-up to Baltimore by season's end. If he's good enough for the best prospect in baseball, according to Baseball America, he's good enough for the Orioles' best prospect this season. Yep. All right, best rookie. Another loaded category. We start with Adley Rutschman. Of course, the most valuable Oriole. Honorable mention for this category is Brian Baker. Mm-hmm. He's made his debut last year with the Toronto Blue Jays, but only pitched one inning. So he's still a rookie, according to us. Felix Bautista, it's hard to remember that he's a rookie, considering how well he pitched. 27-year-old, 65 and two-thirds innings, a 219 ERA, closer by season's end. Kyle Brandish debuted back on April 29th, had some struggles over the course of the season, had some incredible highs over the course of the season. And finally, Gunnar Henderson, who had a very strong month to close out the year. Guys, of these four nominees, seems pretty obvious who's going to win, but all four deserve to be here. Yeah, it's Adley. But it's <laughs> awesome that we have a category for best rookie because there are four with an honorable mention of Brian Baker as well. And you could even add the strong performances we've seen from Kyle Stowers, from Taryn Vavra. It's awesome that we have this many talented rookies to talk about. Yeah. It's Adley. 
Yeah, I agree totally. He had a five-war season. He was only the sixth rookie catcher ever in baseball history to have a five-war season. The others in that category, Carlton Fisk, Mike Piazza, Thurman (laughs) Munson, Johnny Bench. And I actually misspoke. He's only the fifth all-time to have that. So, yeah, that's pretty good company good. for Adley Rutschman. Those names, I don't know. Yeah, I've never heard yeah. of them. Yeah. Jim Palmer, uh, I'm sure, has heard of them too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think it's a pretty easy choice, but it's also worth noting that, you know, it's hard, it's easy to forget. Like you said, Bautista's a rookie, Brian yeah. Baker's a rookie. They had number of rookies step up. And when we reflect on this season, as it's been said a bunch of times, but it can't be overstated, it will be remembered as the year Adley debuted. Brendan, you tweeted something yesterday of that clip of him walking out and, you know, that famous moment where he looks around and does a yep. 360 view. It felt a little bit different from that point on as something, as I think what you said, something similar to that. And that's really what we'll remember this season being is the season that Adley debuted and then the team rallying from that point on, I think. At Brendan Morty is his Twitter handle. Yes. That's mm-hmm. At Tim underscore Leonard four. Mm-hmm. You got Brandon it. Icono. Give us a follow. Yeah, I think it's Adley. All right. Next category. <laughs> these, these are three fun ones right in a row. We got best play, best game, and best performance. And mm. boy, these were fun to look back. On the season and talk about loaded categories. It was I, I tweeted out at Paul Mancano plug. Yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite moment of the season? What was your favorite game? And the diversity of responses. We got a lot of responses that we couldn't include here because there were so many favorite games of fans over the course of the season that they had a special attachment to. They were watching the team comes back and it ends up being a memorable moment for them. So we can't include them all, but we've tried to narrow it down. Let's start with best play here. And we had to include some defensive highlights mm-hmm. and some offensive highlights. Defensive highlight, we could have picked a million Austin Hayes throws. We could have picked a million Cedric Mullins catches. But we're going to go with a Mullins diving catch on June 26th against the White Sox. He robs Andrew Vaughn in the right center field gap. A leaping catch, an outstanding play, and deserving of being the representative for what was another great defensive season for Mullins. Yeah, it seemed like half of the Cedric Mullins highlights this year weren't even really highlights. They were just balls that he had no business getting to. Yeah. And somehow he had an unbelievable jump. And a lot of the times he doesn't even dive or anything like that. Because he's just, there. Because he's just there. Yeah. It's a ball in the gap. And you just go, how did Cedric Mullins get there? And yeah. he's there and makes the out. And I do think one of the underrated things when we were going through these is you forget just how remarkable that stretch was in that time period where Mullins makes that catch. And also Austin Hayes was making, it seemed like, a defensive play every night. And you're watching the Orioles, and there was no ball that was hit into the gap that wasn't being caught by one of those guys. Even when Ryan McKenna was out there and sort of a platoon role, he was making plays as well. So there was one point, I don't remember the exact timeline, but maybe it was... I don't know, early July-ish, when it felt like, wow, this defensive outfield is special, and it's really forming into one that could be really special for years to come. This is a category you should be watching on Facebook, YouTube, or the app, because we have the plays running as well. Gunnar Henderson's first home run deserves to be in here as well. August 31st. Not only was it his first home run, it was also his first hit. It was against the Cleveland Guardians, a big moment in the season. The Orioles needed to win those games, uh, and... He had gotten called up earlier that day. We thought maybe he was going to be a September 1st call-up. Instead, he gets called up on the 31st. And all three of us were watching that Mm -hmm. game, and we jumped out of our seats because of how shocking it was that the helmet flies off his head. Again, 
None of us thought something like that was possible. You dream of something like that. I'm sure he's dreamed of hitting a home run in his MLB debut. But for it to happen at such a crucial moment in the season, when all the hype is building around this team, him to make his presence known on a national stage, I think, was thrilling. And he could barely even see. Yeah, I mean, his helmet <laughs> flew off and it looked like it was covering his eyes. Yeah. Like, it was unbelievable. And as you said, I mean, we know how good Gunnar Henderson had been in the minor leagues this year, but to see him in a lineup that included Adley Rutschman and Gunnar hits a home run, it just, it's one of those moments this year that really encapsulated the fun of what this Orioles season was. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about best play, I often think kind of how you were thinking, Paul, about most memorable moment, most celebratory moment of the season. And we spend the three of us a lot of time together watching Orioles baseball throughout the season. Maybe too much, too much time right. together. Not maybe, but definitely yeah. too much. And as soon as you mentioned, all right, we're doing a best play category. That was one that came to mind for me because like you said, Paul, I remember where we were when it happened. I remember all of us screaming like crazy when it happened and celebrating the moment because it just felt like it was too good to be true. Kyle Stowers first home run that's represented in a different category. I saw somebody commenting mm -hmm. as well, but yes, that deserves a shout out as well. Uh, another one, Trey Mancini. The inside the park home run. I'm still amazed that that was scored in inside the park home yeah. run. <laughs> in my mind, when I was thinking back on it, I thought, oh, that's an error. A little late comer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and no, it was an inside the park home run. Remember, there was controversy after that game, after uh, the ball hits Josh Lowe, after he loses it in the sun and it ricochets 30 feet to his left. Yeah. Trey Mancini ends up scoring on the play. And it was Mo Gabaday. It was his final game at Oreo Park at Camden Yards. What a special moment for so many reasons. It just encapsulated again, like everything that Trey Mancini meant to this team, meant to the city of Baltimore. For him to have that moment in his final home game, it almost made the trade a little bit easier because that moment happened and everyone just went, okay. Yeah. Like, what yeah. A, if, if this is the final time we see Trey Mancini in an Orioles uniform at Camden Yards. I mean, what a way for Trey Mancini to leave his mark. Yeah, you talk about storybook, poetic, surreal, like all those adjectives. I think this is the play that for me I would select as best play just because it doesn't even feel real that it happened to this day. And yeah. thinking back on it, it's just an awesome moment that given what he meant to the Orioles, what he meant to the city of Baltimore and the community, that he kind of somehow gets this perfect ending, even though we didn't even write the script for it. It felt like it was a script that was written. And especially for it to come on Mo Gabaday. Yeah. And Kevin Brown saying something, I believe, on the broadcast, like there is somebody up in heaven smiling at, at this moment. It was really special for so many reasons. You have to include a Jorge Mateo play in yes. this category. It was impossible for us to narrow it down, but we came up with one, and it's a stumbling throw in the, the first inning, I believe, of a game on September 5th against the Blue Jays at home. He ranges to his left. He loses his balance. He's on the ground. He picks it up, and he takes two falling steps backwards. He's at a 45-degree angle with the <laughs> ground and throws a two-bouncer and a great job by Ryan Mountcastle on the other end to stretch out and make the out. Again, a critical time in the season. There are a million... Jorge Mateo plays we could have put in here, but we just thought this one was the best combination of importance and athleticism. And we could honestly just put up a 20-minute Jorge Mateo highlight reel yeah. and just have that be the podcast. I mean, he made so many highlight-worthy plays, like you said, that it was impossible to narrow this down. 
But the throw is unbelievable. The fact that he even gets to that baseball yeah. up the middle is a testament to his range. And again, because it came so late in the season in September, it was a meaningful game and it really just showed how far he had come as a defensive player at the shortstop position. So uh, that play was unbelievable. I think it was throwing out George Springer as well, who you know, right. runs pretty darn well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say so, yeah. There's a couple plays this year where I just watched the replay back over and over and over, and it was like, I, I still don't, I'm not processing this. <laughs> one of them was, it's, I guess, not necessarily a huge play, but that one angle of Adley Rutschman's big, like, uppercut home run swing. Yes. I think it was a Red Sox game when he hit one to center field, and that was one where I was like, all right, I'm just going to watch this replay for the rest of the night, and <laughs> this is going to occupy my time. Also, that Jorge Mateo play where he's stumbling and it just didn't make sense in no. the moment. And even when you watch it 10, 15 times over, I still don't understand it. For me, the play that I watched over and over again was Austin Hayes' yes. throw from the left field corner. It was an unbelievably accurate throw. And that way to one home. camera angle of it. Yes. yes. Yeah. I mean, it was right down the line and it was just a, like a one or two bouncer. Right into the catcher. It was absolutely perfect. Plays like that. Even the Austin Hayes in the, the upper deck home run, I will watch yeah. over and over again because he crushed that ball. For me, combination of the importance of the game, the special moment that it was, for me, the, the winner of this category has to be Mancini's inside the Parker. Yep, I'm with you. It just what it meant to see it happen and just go like, wow, that, that's Trey Mancini. And Gunner's play was equally remarkable. I think in any other year, that probably would have been qualified as, as a worthy best play. But I think you have to give it to Trey in that moment. Gunner's play was the start of something, and Mancini's was the end. And special for different reasons. Very poetic, Paul. Thank you. Nice job. <laughs> yeah, words worth. Uh, all right, best game. A lot of categories, or a lot of nominees, rather, in this category. Let's start with August 25th against the Chicago White Sox at home. The Kyle Stowers first home run game. This was a game that we did not watch because we were driving back from watching the Delmarva Shorebirds in Salisbury, Maryland, when Jackson Holiday was making his uh, debut with the Shorebirds. We were listening to on the radio, and I think we heard Jeff Arnold made make the call for yep. it. And remember, this was when Liam Hendricks was on the mound, who was one of the best closers in all of baseball. Adam Engel drops a pop-up in foul territory that would have ended the game. Stowers is down 0-2 in the count. He reaches out and puts the ball over the fence to tie it. He's fired up. They go into extras. Anthony Santander hits a walk-off single after Felix Bautista pitches two perfect innings of relief in the ninth and 10th. An incredible game. And what a moment that it was, again, one of the times in the course of the season where it felt like, they're getting to the late stages of the game. They're losing. It's an important game, and it feels like, all right, this is probably it. This is probably the beginning of their their collapse, and you know they're going to fall out of playoff contention. And then they just pull off an amazing comeback. And it just felt like the Orioles of this year, where there is a young, impressive player up to bat and just does something that nobody expects. Yeah. That's been the entire Orioles season. Just a young team that nobody expects to be in the place that they are, and they just continue to do it. And nobody in the stadium thought Kyle Stowers was going to take one of the best closers in baseball deep to tie the game when he had an 0-2 count, but he did. 
in that moment, I think he's right after he rounds second base, he lets out a huge fist bump that you can probably see on our YouTube page right now if you're watching along with us live. And I don't know, that's just one of the more, like, gift-worthy moments of the season for the Orioles, I yeah. would say, as well. So, and I... Trying to remember, was that his? It wasn't his first home run. It was. It was, home it was, run. was his okay, first home yeah. run. I knew it was very early, and I was. It makes it even more remarkable that yes. it was his very first homer. And how about also Taron Vavra hits his first homer yesterday? There's been some meaningful first homers this yeah. season for Orioles rookies. There have May twenty second against the Tampa Bay Rays. This was the th- Orioles' third walk off in a four game stretch. <laughs> and remember, this was Adley Rutschman's second career big league game. Remember, he came in, I believe he came in as a defensive replacement in this I game. I think so, yeah. Because I, I think Torino started this game. Remember, he played on, or at least he changed positions. There were all kinds of crazy yeah. things. Maybe he was DH, and then he moved to the field later in the yeah. game. Something like that. Yeah. So the Orioles ended up winning this game 7-6 to six after a lengthy rain delay in the middle of this game. Remember, Spencer Watkins started this game, did not record an out was ended up being charged with three earned runs. The Orioles were down 4 nothing. They come all the way back. They tie it in the ninth after they were down to their last strike on an Austin Hayes double. And then in the 10th, after a, a long rain delay, Rugnet Odor walks it off with this crazy, bizarre swing on a... looked like a Vlad Sr. <laughs> swing with a ball that was in the dirt. And uh, it was a fielder's choice, and Adley scores the winning run. The Orioles win 7-6 to six at a time when things were starting to turn around for the Orioles. Yeah, this was really the beginning. This was one of the games where you looked at the Orioles and you were like, oh my God, Adley's here. It's happening. Yeah. Things are changing. <laughs> like It was just one of those games that really put into perspective the potential of this team. Yeah. Yeah, also Tim Leonard's first weekend here, too. So that was, I think, a right. big reason. They Everything was changing. Stops. Things were changing. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Everyone credits Adley, but, you know, no, you got to was... give me some credit, too. Yeah, yeah. come on. <laughs> uh, a week later, the Orioles didn't have a walk-off win, but it was an impressive win nonetheless. At Fenway, the Orioles were down 8-2 to two in this game. They were down 6 nothing, then 8-2, and they come back and win it 12-8. to eight. They scored 3 in the 7th, 3 in the 8th, and 4 in the ninth. Jorge Mateo had a great game. It was indicative of the kind of season that the Orioles were having. Again, not a walk-off, but a game the Orioles were down six runs at two point, different points. I believe it was a Friday night at Fenway, and they end up coming back and winning. This is a game where last year you'd turn the TV off. Yes. Because the Orioles just didn't really have it in them to well, come back in these games. We don't turn the TV. We don't turn Masson off. Come on. We watch all the games. <laughs> every game. Every moment. But it felt like you could have if you wanted to. Sure. Because the Orioles just didn't come back in a lot of these games, whereas this year it felt like they were truly never out of a game. I'll rephrase. This is a game last year where Jim Palmer and Kevin Brown would have been talking about nonsense by the sure. end of the game. But this time they were more actually so talking about yeah. Yeah, more so than usual. Yeah, more so than usual. It's amazing that it could get to more so than usual. Yeah. But yeah, no, that I think you have to think about comeback victories when you're thinking about the best game category. Yep. That may have been the most improbable comeback of the season. And when Definitely. you do a win probability graph of that, I'm sure it's outrageous the Orioles <laughs> came back. Uh, one more walk-off in this category. July 8th against the Angels. Trey Mancini walks it off, and the Orioles win 5-4. to four. Remember, they were down 3 nothing. They score one in the 7th, one in the 8th, and then three in the ninth. I believe 
Shohei Otani and Mike Trout both homered in this game. And they each they had three hits in the game as well. <laughs> Absurd. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Angels. Yes. So the Orioles were down to their last out. They were down to their last strike with nobody on base, and they're down by two runs at mm-hmm. this yeah. point. Or three runs, I believe. I think it was. Yeah, I think so, they got a run in the eighth, right? So one okay. in the seventh, one, one in the seventh, one in the eighth. They were down five to two. So okay. top of the ninth, it's four to two because Shohei Otani hits a solo home run. Cedric Mullins, sorry, yeah, narrowly misses this ball. Right. I mean, Cedric Mullins has a great angle on it and probably misses robbing a Shohei home run by this much. So the Orioles are down two going into the bottom of the ninth, as you said, Rukneto Odor. Down to the final strike. Two outs, two strikes on Odor. He hits a single. And then Adley Rutschman is the next batter. He's down to two strikes. He hits a double. Odor scores. Yeah, because they let Odor defensive indifference. I think he went to second and then to third. And then to third. So Adley doubles on two strikes. Odor scores. Next up is Cedric Mullins. He's down to two strikes. He singles. Adley scores. Tie game. Trey Mancini is down to two strikes. He doubles. Walk off. Kevin Brown's voice cracks. Yes. The Orioles <laughs> are in the midst of a winning streak. This is the winner for me. It was the third walk-off in five days, and it was in the middle of the winning streak where the Orioles were... Straight, I think. Right. They were closing in on 500, and they were looking like a, a really good baseball team. Yeah. I mean, they were... This was the beginning of the push. Yeah. Yeah, in that whole series, I remember really fondly that Angel series because there was great attendance every single game. Yep. The winning streak was right in the middle. And I think this is right around the time where we were like, oh my gosh, the Orioles are 500. And it's yeah. amazing to think they finished the season four games above 500. And some might have been a little underwhelmed at times with their September to get yeah. to that point because we were just amazed that they were even hovering around 500 that deep into the season. That, I think, is the best game that encapsulates the season. It's a comeback. The bullpen was excellent. It wasn't even really one particular dominant performance. It was just everyone in the team stepping up as a unit. So I think that's the selection here. Yep, I agree. Best performance. A lot of worthy nominees here. Let's start with Austin Hayes' cycle on June 22nd. Went single, home run, triple, and double. Orioles win 7 nothing in a rained-shortened game. He got... The cycle in six innings against the Nationals. Unfortunately, that was kind of the start of what would end up being a long slump for Austin Hayes, but what a performance to get the cycle on that day. Yeah, Austin Hayes, as we've mentioned, looked like an all-star at the beginning of the year, and this was one of those performances where you just saw what the potential was with Austin Hayes, and hopefully that potential is still there. We're going to talk about Hayes a lot this offseason and what his role might look like for next season. But at the beginning of the year, we were really excited about the possibility of what a healthy season of Austin Hayes could look like. It was the first cycle ever in MLB history in a rain-shortened game. Only went six innings, like Paul said. It was the sixth cycle ever by an Oriole player. And also, it was the first time in MLB history that someone has hit a cycle after a golden sombrero the game before. You forget about that part. (laughs) He had a golden sombrero the game before, and it was in the midst of his hot streak. But that was one bad game where we were like, oh, maybe this is the end of the hot streak. And then he came back around and hit a cycle in six innings. Unbelievable. Another performance from Cedric Mullins. It was a 10-9 win over the Rangers. Honestly, this could have been a best game because the Orioles walked it off on a Mullins double. He not only had that walk-off hit, he also had two doubles, three hits in the game. He had three RBIs and two walks. 
And we didn't have a whole lot of great offensive games from players. We didn't have any three-homer games. We had several two-homer games that we could have put in here from Anthony Santander. But we went with Mullins because that was an all-around game from Cedric. And it felt like both Mullins and Hayes had a lot of games this year where they would get a couple hits, make a couple great defensive plays in the outfield, and put together a great performance overall. I know Cedric Mullins didn't have 30-30 this year, but he is so much better than you thought he was this yeah. season. I'm just going to say that. No a, a great performance, and he had a fantastic season all around. Yeah, I think an honorable mention, too, well, it's top of mind, Jorge Mateo had a five-hit game, which, I mean, shows you that any other year, maybe that would be included in yeah. one of the best performances, but it just didn't make it in on our list. Two pitching performances to give you, and they happened within a two-day stretch, three-day stretch. Dean Kramer. On September 23rd against Houston, first complete, com- first career complete game shutout. He was excellent. Allowed four hits, six strikeouts, two walks on 106 pitches against a very good Astros team. Orioles still fighting for their lives in the AL wildcard race. And then Kyle Bradish almost does the exact same thing. Eight and two-thirds innings, exactly 100 pitches, two hits, no walks, 10 strikeouts, <laughs> Felix Bautista comes in and closes the door. So two great performances. One was the complete game, but honestly, Bradish, he came one out short of that complete game, but he was more impressive in terms of walks and strikeouts. Yeah, Bradish gets my nod here for the category of best performance because he faces, like you said, that's an elite Houston Astros lineup. That's not just a very good lineup. That is probably one of the best in all of baseball. And he goes eight and two-thirds, two hits, like you said, 10 strikeouts, no walks is ridiculous. And not only was it a fantastic performance, it was among a stretch of games in the latter half of the season where Kyle Bradish came back from injury and looked like a dude and a half. I mean, he was insane the second half of the year. And I think this performance showed you just how good Kyle Bradish could be. So for me, it gets the nod because not only was it a fantastic performance, but it was also an incredibly encouraging sign of things to come. Yeah, it was nearly a Maddox, as they call it, where you get a shutout in less than 100 pitches. He threw 100 pitches. He just didn't get that last out there because I believe he came back out and allowed a single, and it was it was just like, yeah, we'll, we'll put in Felix Bautista to right. finish it off at that point. But outstanding performance. You could also make a case that he's, his performance at Houston, kind yeah. of in the middle part of the season, is also maybe worthy of this. So, safe to say the Astros do not want to face Kyle Bradish <laughs> anytime soon. What exactly is a dude and a half? You've used this before, Brendan. <laughs> I mean, if somebody has a good performance, you usually call him a dude. And then... You give him an extra half dude? Yeah, because he's... I mean, it's a heck of a dude. Is it the top half? Is it the bottom Oof, half? Is it the I'm left not getting right? into specifics. Has anybody ever been two full dudes? Yeah, is Adley two dudes? <laughs> I, I, I think there is... You know, like, somebody gives you 110%. Yeah, what, where's that 10% coming from? So if somebody's a dude, they're giving you 100%. If you're a dude and a half, it's somewhere in the 110% to 150% range. Wow. Mm. Let's go... For me, I'm going to go with Bradish in that as well. Okay, I'm going to say Austin Hayes cycle just because it, it was in six innings. Is this the I, first time we've disagreed it, on one of these categories, yeah, by the way? <laughs> I think Bradish was phenomenal, and it's it feels wrong to not give it to a pitching performance, but the more I think back on the Austin Hayes cycle, I know it started kind of a slump. Yeah. It was just it's something that has never happened in MLB history to do it in a rain-shortened game. Yeah, it is almost 
hard to top. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of an offensive performance. Three categories remain, guys. Mm-hmm. Best reliever, best starter, best player. These are like the best director, best actor, best picture. Where's Will Smith? <laughs> Should we bring him out? <laughs> Somebody's getting punched. Our producer, Amy Jennings, just comes out of the background, just smacks Paul. It's like, it's been 55 minutes. Come on. All right. Best reliever. Felix Bautista, Jorge Lopez, CNL Perez, and Dylan Tate. I threw Jorge Lopez in this category because of how dominant he was before the trade deadline. And I know he wasn't with the team for the entire season, but my goodness, how many times did he help this team in an instance where in 2021, the Orioles never would have closed out a game. They never would have closed out that win. And Jorge Lopez set the tone for what would become an incredibly good bullpen for the entire course of the season, even though he wasn't there to see it through. I think Jorge Lopez deserves a nod here. Felix Bautista, 219 ERA that frankly was too high considering how good he was for the vast majority of the season. He had a four-run performance near the end of the season that kind of inflated that ERA. But he had he went 15 for 17 in saves, 12.1 Ks per nine. He was excellent. CNL Perez, a 148 ERA. We've already talked a little bit about how good he was. And then Dylan Tate, quietly very solid. The strikeout numbers weren't gaudy. He pitches to ground balls, contact, weak contact. But he made significant improvements this year, and I think he deserves to get the final spot here. I think, again, this probably comes down to the two of CNL Perez and Felix Bautista. As you mentioned, Jorge Lopez deserves a ton of credit. He was this team's representative at the All-Star game. He was absolutely lights out the first half of the season. But I think you have to go with somebody who has been here for all 162, which is not the fault of Jorge Lopez. That's just how things turned out. I'm going to go with Bautista just because I know the ERA for Perez is better, but I'm not going to use the advanced numbers against him, but Perez just wasn't as dominant. I mean, Felix Bautista had a better whip. He had better strikeout numbers and it felt like a lot of the time with Felix Bautista, if he was on, if he had his A stuff in a game, nobody was touching that dude. I, his stuff was unhittable that at times. That dude and his half dude. Right. <laughs> so just for the sheer dominance that we saw on you know certain nights with Bautista, I'm giving him the edge. Yeah, I, I'd say it's Bautista too. I think when you look at the numbers, though, it's a little bit closer than I would have thought. You yeah. could make a case for Perez. I mean, he does have more baseball reference war with 2.8. Bautista had 2.6, but Bautista was in the closer role. He was in the highest of highest leverage situations in the second half of the year. There was a lot of pressure on him to perform when you've got this fancy intro and the Omar whistle. And I remember thinking when they first went to that, I was a little skeptical, like, man, is, is this too early? Or are they? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Right? that. Yeah. yeah, and now when you look at his advanced numbers, like you were saying, Brendan, not that that should be a huge factor in this, but there's nothing fluky about this season from Bautista. As right. much as a reliever can be trustworthy, I feel like he's in that category. I totally agree. And I will say, you know, Perez was thrown into a lot of high leverage situations, but Almost every single situation that Bautista was in was a high leverage mm-hmm. situation. Yep. So I got to give it to Bautista here. Best starter. This one is a little bit more difficult because no one starter for as good as the Orioles pitching staff was this season and the improvements they made under Chris Holt and Brandon Hyde. No one guy stepped up and was the, you know, Cy Young contender was the take the ball every fifth day and you know you're getting a win guy. They just were good across the board. So for these 
four nominees, I went with Kyle Bradish, Dean Kramer, Jordan Lyles, and Austin Voth. All four guys were flashed significant improvements this year. All four guys were good in their own right. None of them was head and shoulders above everybody else, though. Yeah, this is a really hard category. Mm -hmm. I think Kyle Bradish probably doesn't get my vote just because you can't ignore the first half of the season where Kyle Bradish struggled a decent amount if he had been a little bit more consistent and was consistently the starter that we saw at the second half of the year once he returned from injury, then Kyle Bradish probably gets the nod here. Yeah, Austin Voth was excellent all year long, but... I mean, he wasn't here for the entire season, which yeah. works against him a added, little bit. Added June 7th. Right. And and I will say as well that when there was a new starter added to the Orioles rotation, Austin Voth was the first one to move back into the bullpen, which I think says something about how the coaching staff viewed the starting rotation, which isn't anything against Austin Voth. Maybe that decision was just made because he has the capability to be, real, be a reliever. He's done it in his career. Well, remember the first few starts that he had in Baltimore, they were like three and two-thirds at right. most. They mm-hmm. really weren't because he wasn't a full-time starter when they claimed him. So for me, this comes down to Jordan Lyles and Dean Kramer. Jordan Lyles, I think, was incredibly valuable, as we've talked about, with eating the innings. He did exactly what the Orioles wanted you to do. My vote goes to Dean Kramer. The ERA was over a run better than Jordan Lyles with a 3.23 ERA in 22 games, had a whip just over 1.2. The strikeout numbers were down, but as both Kramer and Hyde have talked about this season, that was a process thing where he wanted to attack the strike zone more and induce weak contact. And again, I know that this is an award for this season, but it inspired so much confidence about what we could see from Kramer moving forward. It was a spectacular season all around from Kramer, and I think we will continue to see them out of him. I was very similar thinking to you, Brennan. It came down to Kramer and Lyles for me, and I was very torn. I think this was the hardest decision of the entire awards here. I feel like you have to give it to Kramer because his stats were better, but the argument for Lyles, and I went in thinking I was going to say Lyles, is because he threw way more innings, num, 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 than anyone else in the Orioles' starting rotation. He threw 179 innings, I believe. But then I looked at the baseball reference war. Kramer had a 2.8 war on the season. Lyles had a 1.0. You could look at Fangraph's war, which gives more benefit to volume of innings, and it's closer, but it's still Kramer. And I think given that and also the fact that basically Kramer was about as good as he could have been once he came back from injury and didn't really have any rough starts, I'll give him a slight edge, but it's close. Shocking that he wins this considering, again, started the season hurt. Pitching yeah. in Bowie in May. I know he was working his way back from injury, but remarkable turnaround for Dean Kramer. I think he deserves it as well. I think this award next year, we could be talking about Grayson Rodriguez. could be talking about maybe a DL Hall. Maybe John Means comes back and, and reclaims this award. All right, finally, best player. Now, this one's kind of anticlimactic because we've right. already announced our votes for the MVO, which has already been awarded and handed out. But we're, we're going to include four people in this category nonetheless. Felix Bautista, Cedric Mullins, Adley Rutschman, Anthony Santander. Santander, honestly, with the final month that he had, he didn't get a whole lot of love from us a month ago when we had to vote for Most Valuable Oriole, but he had multiple two-homer games in the month of September, 
And frankly, he was the second best offensive player for the Orioles this season. So I think Santander deserves to be in there. And we've already talked about how good Mullins was on both sides of the ball. Mount Castle, I think you could throw an honorable mention to, but these are my final four. Yeah, I, it's Adley Rutschman. We already had our MVO discussion, as you said. So I'm not going to go back into my argument for Adley Rutschman. But I want to reiterate, like you said, Paul, I think if we were to cast our votes for MVO right now, at the time that our podcast went up and, and we said who we voted for, my ballot was number one, Adley Rutschman, number two, Felix Bautista, and number three, Jorge Mateo. I think if right now you asked me for most valuable Oriole, my three would be Adley Rutschman, Felix Bautista, and Anthony Santander because he had such a good stretch the last month of the season. And the Orioles were not out of this thing for a while. And Anthony Santander was a massive reason as to why this lineup was still producing, why they were still drawing close in this playoff race. So I think Santander, while he doesn't win best player, if I were to vote for that top three again, Santander is in my top three. And he went from what at times felt like an obvious trade chip to maybe an integral part of the yeah. next couple of years for the Orioles. The way he hit, the way he improved his walk rate this season. One quick stat on Adley just to further drive home why he is the most valuable Oriole this year. They're 50 and 34 in games he started, which is a 96 win pace. I saw someone tweeted that out. That gives you optimism for the years to come, for sure. Absolutely. Adley Rutschman is our best player. We have handed out all of our awards. Best podcast, the Mass and All Access podcast. <laughs> yeah, we were I mean, the there were the no category. other competitors in the category because <laughs> we made the category and we made sure that we were the only possible vote. I'll have you guys ingrained on the couple uh, giant trophies later. Right. That'd be lovely. Um, that just about does it for our final podcast of the season. However, boy, do we have a lot of off-season content planned we mentioned the free agency coverage. I saw there were a lot of comments where people were already getting into that stuff. Don't worry. We will have you covered throughout the offseason with potential guys the Orioles could sign, maybe some trades that they will have. And then we'll have some fun stuff as well. I think we're going to have another draft. Well, that is going to be fun, Paul. Don't sell it short. Yeah. yeah. There's some silly stuff. Yeah. About that. Ooh. It's lower we're, stakes. We're doing a goofy one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we're nothing if not goofy. We've done drafts. We've done the All Camden Yards draft, All or Weaver draft. I think we're going to have another draft at some point during the course of the offseason. So we'll have plenty of content coming your way during this entire offseason. And thank goodness we are going to have an offseason without a whole lot of COVID concerns and without a lockout in the middle of the offseason. Mm -hmm. So we are going to... Have a real good time, I think, this offseason. Yeah. At Tim underscore Leonard Ford, yes. your handle. Mm -hmm. At Brandon Morty. I am at Paul Mancano. Any final thoughts, Brendan? Looked like you were about to say something. No, it, it's going to be a fun offseason. I mean, we've had a lot of people commenting along, and you know, we've heard Michael Elias' comments over the last few days as well, where they're going to hopefully be looking at some major league free agents. They're yeah. going to be making some buy now type of trades rather than what we've seen in the past years, which is, you know, selling veteran talent to get prospects. We could be seeing the opposite. So I think it's going to be a very exciting offseason and an intriguing one for us as well, because we have to approach it way differently than we've approached it the last few seasons. Yeah. And we also want to say thank you to everybody who followed along all season. Uh, thank you so much for listening, for watching at times when, look, this is a great season, but it wasn't great from start to finish, and you guys stuck with it. And frankly, the last several years for the Orioles fans yeah. for sticking with it. At this point last year, this speech was very different. It was, 
this was a very difficult season. It's amazing that we made it. And it was just a totally different team. It was a totally different vibe this year. But everybody who joined us this year, they went through some hard times to get here. They watched a lot of podcasts where we were talking about will Renato Nunez be the Orioles' home run leader this season and stuff like that. And it's fun to be on the other side of that now where we're flipping the page and talking about winning baseball. We're here. Baltimore. We're here. We've arrived. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to Emmy Jennings for producing this podcast. We will be back next week with fresh content. Give us a like, subscribe, all that good stuff. We'll catch you next time.